are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your guest host, Jamie Lee Sampson. Adventurous, reflective, queer. Aidan K. Feldkamp began their musical life at the age of five playing a quarter-sized cello, and now they're upending preconceptions about voice and gender as a trans non-binary writer and specialist in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mex Feldkamp's operatic libretti center marginalized characters and span the serious and the ridiculous, the real and the surreal. Their work includes a queer sequel to Don Giovanni, an homage to Clara Schumann, a vignette of an old married couple on Long Island, and Holocaust remembrance art. Their libretti have been commissioned by Albany Symphony, Cantus, the University of Texas at Austin, the Emily Dickinson Museum at Amherst College, and the International Museum of Surgical Science. They also write science fiction, poetry, and educational nonfiction. Most recently, their work has been published in Crepe Pin Pen, Bait Switch, and New Music Box. Feldkamp began as a mezzo-soprano specializing in Baroque opera and new music. Now, they wrangle composers and administrators as the director of emerging composers and diversity for the American Composers Orchestra. They hold degrees from Hofstra University and Bard College Conservatory of Music and a certification in DEI from Cornell University. They live in Jersey City with their partner, Cat, two parrots, and robot dog. I'm so excited to host this episode of Lexical Tones and have one of my favorite people on to chat for the day. This is fantastic. Welcome to Lexical Tones. We're here. We're weird. It's nice. not uncommon for this to go off the rails, so let's just <laughs> dive right in. Sounds um, good. <laughs> so, uh, so my first question, and I don't have many organized questions because you know I'm I'm me, and we're all gonna see how this goes. But I, as I was listening to your output of works, I was thinking back to when we first met—not in person, but like when we first started moving in the same Twitterverse circles—and. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to make the assumption that if somebody is in contemporary music and they write text for opera, songs, song cycles, it's easy to assume that they're also a composer because there's so many of us who are doing this kind of both, uh, you know, this like one foot in each pond yep. thing. And I think I assumed you were a composer at first. I mean, actually, I think... <laughs> People assume I'm a composer probably once a week at work. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's fair. that would be, I think that's, but you come from this, you, you are doing this amazing thing where you are writing text for all of these different people and listening through your output. It's been fantastic to just see like who you've gotten to work with and a million different styles that that's, your text has been set to. Yep. How did you get into this? What? Where did you come from? Where? Where? How can we have? How can we have this happen more often? How did you become a a text centric member of our new music community? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I as you say, I've been so lucky working with different people, and every project is so different, and I love that. It's so so fun. Um, so I started as a cellist, then became an opera singer. And then became a librettist. So, oh God, I love this and already. So <laughs> that's like my direct path. And I mean, there's nothing less direct than how I got there. But it's just funny because I've been writing since as long as I can remember. Like, um, I mean, I worked <laughs> my first job. My first summer job was at Chuck E. Cheese. And I worked <gasps> there. <laughs> You're kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I worked there the whole summer so I could buy a computer to write on. Like, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be able to sit in my room by myself and write, like, straight typing so that I wouldn't have to write it down on paper, wait for our family computer to be free, and then type it. So, <laughs> like, I mean, I was like, you that's know, amazing. 15 or 14 or something. Um, <laughs> and yes, I did wear the Chuck E. Cheese outfit. So I was <gasps> Chuck E. Cheese and got, like, run over by children at children's parties. Oh. So... You know, I don't think I could handle that, like at any age. (laughs) (laughs) And now you're a teacher, so. (laughs) Yes, but but for the most part, I teach the ones who have reached the age of 18. And on very lucky semesters, they're 20. Yeah. And above. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But yeah, so (laughs) long story short is I've been writing as long as I can remember. Um, I started as a sci-fi writer. And I mean, that's 
what I still do a lot of. Um, but then I got into poetry as I became an emo teenager, um, and I've never really <laughs> stopped. So um, I've been writing all along, and you know I've been published you know, way before I even started opera singing. So that's what's weird. So I got into opera singing, was singing, and then when it came time to, like, really embrace the fact that I had to transition, I was like, what am I going to do in opera that I will love as much as singing? Because I couldn't Mm. think of anything. Because I was really, like, I knew I had to do it. I knew that my voice, as I knew it, was going to change. And, like, I didn't know what that meant for my career. So I was like... I have to find something that I love as much as this. And, you know, I thought about directing. I thought about, I tried some producing. um, And I do love commissioning and making things happen. But it's not the same um, for me um, personally. And so then one day it just hit me. I'm like, why don't I write text for opera? Like, (laughs) nadoy. (laughs) I don't know why it took me this long. And then I was like, okay. Yes. And so I started writing just like just to try it out. And I loved it. And then, you know, I had some really lovely composers who are willing to like, try out, you know, a short piece with me or, you know, eventually a longer piece. And like, I had some stuff to show them, but I was really just starting out. And so since then, I've come, you know, a long way. But, you know, it was really just through the generosity of early collaboration that I was able to like try things out so yeah it's it's a great combination of drama so like the playwriting like side that I you know and like I I feel like I get that through my prose writing of like structuring a long story or short story um and characters and all that stuff and then like the poetry side of it comes in because I find that like things that have to be sung are very poetic and then just being a singer, knowing how things are sung and what will translate well into sung text and kind of how the pacing of (laughs) opera goes, like really being inside that pacing as a singer, like really helps me write, I think. Man, I hadn't even I hadn't even really thought about the perspective of knowing how you know the mechanism of singing works compared to the text. Like obviously, yeah. you know, you're you're that's something that's on the forefront of my mind as a composer every time I sit down to write for voice is like okay, I have to sing the word donut. That's <laughs> I have to set the word, not sing it, but I I of course sing through it as well, but like that's such a how what am i supposed to do with that word um and and so it's it's kind of fascinating to me that you get to sit down with the te- like the idea from the beginning and know exactly what words that is going to you know take more time for the composer or if they don't take time which ones are not going to be understood and kind of you know like pre-frame the entire dramatical arc with that in mind that's magic yeah i mean intoning the text is part of my process here and even just like word order makes so much like of a difference and word choice makes such of a difference where it doesn't make as much a difference if you're writing prose or even poetry because i write poetry to be read more so than spoken where some Mm -hmm. poetry is really written to be spoken um and that's a different art form than what i'm used to spending my time in um but yeah like intoning the words and even choosing okay this vowel and then this consonant and this vowel like actually Mm -hmm. is really awkward so let's like maybe put a different word there things like that i once asked a poet to write a five stanza poem in which the third stanza was mostly plosive consonants like it had as many plosive consonants as they could fit in it and they were like are you crazy (laughs) what no one's asked me for this. Like, mood, yes. Emo- like, yes, I get I get certain things, but why plosive? And I was like, because the singer is going to have fun. Come on, this is going to be the rhythmic section. Yeah. And, and that just doesn't compute in the same way as somebody who has been trained through all of these musical lenses. That's phenomenal. Oh, how are you not writing 24-7? Like, like I imagine that the skill set is so highly in demand um, that I don't... How do you have... Do you have time to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
<laughs> so right now I only, I, I actually really, I mean, especially with the pandemic, but often other times too, it's actually very hard for me to focus on more than one project at once. So I really like to give each project a lot of focus and a lot of time. So I actually will split up my year and like be like, I'm only taking this amount of projects in this period of time. Um, because I just, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to just take on a lot of projects. Um, and so I'm, I don't think anybody listening is going to be able to identify with that sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, not the person on the other end of the microphone. (laughs) So yeah. And it's like, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a day job and to have a day job I really love. So like I, I can financially pick and choose the projects I want to do. And that to me is the favorite, my favorite way to engage with the art form actually, um, is to pick and choose the projects. Um, and so like having the freedom to do that is a huge privilege. And so I, you know, I take on, I don't know, maybe three or four big projects a year and then one or two Mm. small projects. And I always try to do, um, a free micro opera commission for an emerging composer, especially one from an underrepresented group. Cause I feel like that's like really important too. And I don't ever want to like cut myself off from doing work like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's about like spacing out your time and knowing what's possible. And then <laughs> like, really, I love to just like, if I'm starting a new project, it'll be like a month or two of just research. And mm-hmm. so like being able to focus that hardcore and that specifically on a project is really great. That's awesome. Well, while, you know, we're at this point here, why don't we listen to one of the pieces that you've brought for us? Uh, which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start with Ghost Variations or Ye the Smoke Curls into the Sky? <laughs> Let's do the Ghost Variations one. All right. Okay, so you've written a couple of librettos from a historical perspective, but you are also a very sci-fi centric person. Um, <laughs> and so most of what I li- I've listened to in getting ready for tonight's podcast is is your historical side. Um, and and it just it differs from from conversations we've had in the past. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> loving it. But this is between Clara Schumann and Robert Schumann and a couple of um spirits sort yeah, of right yeah. um ephemeral eph- uh, is that the right word yeah. i wanted ethereal ethereal i mean they're basically yeah. two characters in robert schumann's head but yeah <laughs> i love this this is this is very um almost twilight zone-esque yeah i don't i mean like it's it's a it's a really useful device for opera is to just have a couple of characters that no one else can hear except our one person who's 
really upset that there's an A playing in the in their ear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and I mean if if you get really nerdy about music history, you know that Robert Schumann wrote a lot of music critique from the um, viewpoint of himself, Floristan and Eusebius, who were characters <laughs> that he made up to say the things that he didn't want to get in trouble for saying. <laughs> So, so he had his own troll account. Basically. <laughs> Magical. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, I, I love this part. And especially the lines about, you know, kind of losing your mind before your your health. I mean, it's... I don't know about... I don't know about everybody else. But there's a huge history of Alzheimer's in my family. And so from, like, the age of 16 on... I have been convinced that I'm going to be healthy as a horse, but not know who on earth anybody is. And it's one of my biggest fears. But the opposite of that is like losing your physical ability, but still knowing everything. And I actually think that might be worse for me as a human. Yeah, <laughs> I just... Because I'm not actually nice in those situations. <laughs> I Yeah, I mean, ugh, it's kind of two sides of one coin, you know, I don't know which is worse, right. but... Um, yeah, I, I mean, what he says there is basically the, you know, thesis of the entire show is that like, what do you do when your mental health just takes over your life and you have no choice but to like only focus on that and leave everything else to other people. And it's kind of about how mm. Clara like holds everything together, her whole family, mm. their friends, like everyone kind of relies on her to like be the emotional support through it all. And yet she's the one like losing her husband. Yeah, yeah. And so there's like a level of grief that can't be expressed because of the hyper focus on just what needs to happen next. What's the next emergency? It's such a, I mean, relatable. It's It's yep. been a long time since this all transpired, but still entirely, you know, we, we probably all know at least one or two people who's got extended family going through a similar situation, um, which is... is you know, what I love when we dig into history, there's there's so many benefits to each of the different genres we could potentially write in for opera. But when we dig into history, it's like the emotions just keep on repeating. Sometimes the mistakes, too. The human <laughs> mistakes. Yeah. But but those emotions, like, they, they will ring true in 100 years. They will ring true in 200 years. The story will be entirely relatable. Um, that's, that's so fantastic. And you got to do this. This is, um, the National Opera Center did, uh, the, the premiere or was it a reading? What is, what was it like to do this session with them? Yes. It was a staged reading at the National Opera Center. Um, it was only act one. Um, but it's amazing to, this was my first full length opera that I wrote. So that's why I wanted Mm. to share it. Um, and it was just so exciting for me to go from like toiling in my room by myself, writing stuff to like yeah. hearing it, you know, and seeing it on stage. And there's nothing quite as exciting as that. And so um, I'm really excited. So this one's actually finally being premiered in full with the full orchestration and everything. They're doing a film premiere on June 4th with Thompson Street Opera, which is in Chicago. So yeah, I am very, awesome. very excited for that because I've never heard <laughs> the full orchestration. I've never heard Act Two fully through. Um, oh my gosh! So I'm just so, so jazzed. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! And and like to, for it to be one of the first things coming out of the pandemic. You've been in New York City. You've been probably more extremely quarantined than a lot of us have. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm in. New York State. So I understand a lot of the restrictions that you've been under that we've all been under. But at the same time, like I go for a run every single day. I haven't put a mask in my pocket for that run in months because I know that in a small town, all I can do, I like I can step out into the road and avoid people and be be far enough away. But you know, we, we talked briefly before we started recording about just like the joy of going to go get your first post-pandemic haircut <laughs> is palpable. And we're starting to feel that with all these performances as well. And for that first thing out to be Thompson Street Opera doing a fully orchestrated 
oh, that's yeah. got to be amazing to go from this year to this full blooming project is is spectacular. Oh my gosh! Well, is that going to be live streamed or is it going to be live? Is it going to be perf- like hybrid with audience or? So it's live streamed. Um, it's like a film. So they made a film version of it. Um, oh, that's right. You said that. Yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> Um, and so it's being like live stream does like a live premiere that like everyone sits down at the same time and watches it, but then it's available to watch after obviously. Um, but I think it's like you said, like the story of it and like the, so when Tony and I first started talking, I was like, Hey, what do you want to write an opera about? And I, that's right. We should say this is Tony Manfredonia, Yeah. So right? Tony Manfredonia yes. is the composer. He's so, so cool. He writes incredible game music like really cool and then you know obviously symphonic stuff and everything and Mm -hmm. and this operatic stuff and this was his first opera too so we were kind of like you know in the same boat in that way um Mm -hmm. but i you know when i work with a composer i say hey what are the themes or the topics that you're really excited about um and he said i really want to do something about mental health and awareness and like kind of showing like what the family goes through um, and how like not only do we need to support someone going through a mental health crisis, but we need to support everyone who supports them. Mm -hmm. So like, um, and I was like thinking about stories on that and I was like, oh my goodness, like why don't we talk about the Schumanns? And he was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. So (laughs) then I started like, I mean, I already like knew some stuff from music history or whatever, but when I started really diving into like their letters and their diaries and freaking Brahms when he comes into the picture, it's a whole other story. (laughs) So yeah, just so I should say, I'm so excited because Tony is so chill about, there were a few things I threw out there that seemed kind of weird, but he totally went for like Brahms is a pants role in this, which like is perfect in my opinion (laughs) is a dramatic (laughs) soprano um and and having floristan eusebius is like a huge part of the show and they're Mm -hmm. both agender characters so it's actually the in the premiere that you saw in at uh national opera we have a trans singer and a non-binary singer playing those characters so that made me personally very happy um yeah so like being able to put in like representation even in this very like straight story or yeah. heterosexual oh. story was really fun. <laughs> creating creating that space because we all know that with with some forethought there's so many stories that can be told with greater inclusion. Mhm. Yep. If our gut reaction is not defensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, that brings up, that kind of uh, pulls me into something else I want to talk about. You are uh, working with Dennis Tabinsky on another project as well. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that because a little bird told me that some decisions have been made. You don't have to talk about the decisions, but I just want to hear about the project because it is, it is fabulous. Yeah. I'm, I'm I can't wait. so beyond excited for this. Um, so as an art, art song lover, um, an opera lover, obviously, um, when I was singing art song, it always like was really tough for me to find art songs that I really related to. Mm-hmm. And I have since found some and I'm very passionate about, but like, especially as a non-binary singer, I was just like always like pigeonholed into like singing this song. It's like about being a lady and you're a lady and you're going to be a lady or you sing this song and it's like written for a man and only men are supposed (laughs) to sing it. And then you do and it's a big deal. And I'm like, why can't I just sing this thing? (laughs) And so (laughs) as I'm thinking about this and thinking about a lot of other things, um, I really wanted to create an anthology of art songs and opera arias for and by trans and non-binary singers and composers and whatever. So Mm -hmm. um, I brainstormed the project with Turn the Spotlight, which is um, this awesome um, nonprofit organization that mentors um, women and non-binary people in the arts. And so I was, I was chosen as one of their fellows was so lucky. Um, And so I started brainstorming this project with them. And what we came to was this idea of creating an anthology and the piece had to fulfill one of three criteria. Either the composer was trans or non-binary, the libretto or text was written by someone who's trans or non-binary, or it was written for a singer 
to sing who's trans or non-binary so that we can kind of like create this space for you know trans and non-binary can people can go to this anthology and find music for them but then also programmers and teachers can go to it and be like oh these are the people that are working in this area so not only do i see their work here but then i can like look on the internet or wherever and find out more about them um so it's like no one has an excuse of being like i don't know any trans composers or whatever and it's like oh here's actually a whole book (laughs) so yeah that is that's coming out really soon and i am just i was so blown away by the submissions to this like i mean some of them was like me going out and being like hey this is awesome please send it in but some Mm -hmm. of it was people i've literally never heard of in my whole life and i listened to this piece and it just like blew me away like such incredible incredible work so i'm just so excited to bring together all of this good stuff into one book for everyone (laughs) and (laughs) um and dennis who runs uh new music shelf who's uh Mm -hmm. publishing this has has been awesome because i was very adamant about things being available in multiple keys because Mm -hmm. you know it's like there's a whole other conversation i can have about voice type and gender and the conflation of these things and so yeah He's like, no, um, literally anyone who, you know, writes me will get a transposition to any key for $5. So <gasps> that's amazing. I'm just like, thank. Oh, I love it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so because good. I mean, as a, on the publishing side of things, I, I, I completely understand the, you know, it might eventually, the eventuality may be that it's available in all of the keys but as someone who's working on multiple projects trying to get many out the door like yeah 12 transpositions and different clefts of an anthology is is gotta be 10 years of work it's a lot (laughs) and also it's like printing all that is just a lot you know yeah yeah (laughs) and i mean like some of the services actually you know dennis and i have talked quite extensively about this because i think we use a lot of the same services um for printing and a lot of it now is thankfully on demand so self-publishers and small press companies are not going broke trying to keep up with um you know (laughs) i have to pay x amount of dollars to have 4500 of these printed and then i have to store them yeah. yeah that that's like make it or break it for a teeny tiny company like ours um and 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 you know dennis is in new york city so i imagine storage space is like no <laughs> just no <laughs> just, just just no <laughs> um, it's so, just so much better for the environment too you know yeah absolutely but that that kind of like absolute inclusion you just let me know and we will make it available is has got to be amazing also for the transitioning voice for those who do continue to sing through transition um as well that's got to be something that like this is my favorite song i want to bring it with me along a journey that's got to be so comforting i imagine yeah Um, i mean i think that's awesome i mean that's what i love about art song is that literally it's built to be transposed and so you sing the one that feels right. And, you know, like, it may seem finicky, but, like, even just a, a whole step, you know, makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, my God, yes. I'm so glad we got to talk about that project. Um, yeah. I did I did send multiple students along the way t- towards towards that call. And I'm so excited that one of them uh, sent me a message this week. and was like, Professor Sampson! <laughs> I was like, yay! Yes, awesome. And then the, you know, inevitable follow-up was, I have 37 questions about my contract. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> like, yep. Entrepreneurship. We're starting this, you know, a couple months early. Let's do it. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. I love it. Oh, I can't wait to see the entire collection. I know that, like, we're we're not talking names now because a lot you've just finished the process of of kind of figuring out what's going in the anthology, yeah. and you're just and Dennis is just starting the notation process. I imagine, but. Yeah. He also works really fast. So do you have an ETA on delivery for that? Um, I haven't heard from him, so I don't want to say anything, put That's words fine in his mouth. Me. But <laughs> yeah. um, our goal has always been this summer. So I'm hoping that nice. that's, you know, what's going to happen. Awesome. And we are going to be buddies because I am wrapping up the bassoon anthology right now as well. So both anthologies will come out 
similar times, I hope. I don't know. I also don't want to put words in Dennis's mouth, but I love that this is this is happening tangentially yes. as well. I love it. Great. And we also have several trans and non-binary um, people in our in the bassoon anthology as well. I love it. Fantastic. So I definitely know actually... a few trans bassoon players, which yes, I think is really fun. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I um you mentioned earlier uh and you know one of the things I d- I try not to do in an in an interview situation like this is make your identity the thing we talk about. I want to talk about your work. Um but you mentioned something earlier about not knowing any co- trans composers and I was like, "Really?" Cuz okay. cuz no. I, that can't you can't no, you can't say that. <laughs> I mean, people are just lazy sometimes, I think. And then they're just like, I don't know any. And it's like, well, you have even less of an excuse now. The, that's incredibly true. Well, I can't wait to share all of this information as soon as Dennis says it's okay to. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, we've got another piece to listen to from you. You want to listen to that as well? I'm trying to find all my windows here. So, um, tell us a little bit about the second one here. Ye the smoke curls into the sky. Um, so Ye is actually the last name of the composer. That's okay. Oh god. So all this right. Is, so that's okay. I'm just like So, um, <laughs> Thomas B Ye uh, is the composer and he um I wondered why you were smirking before. (laughs) Okay, I'm reading this off of the, obviously, the iTunes I just thought, I thought it was funny to think about, like, me writing the word ye in a libretto. That's why I was kind of smirking. Um, I'm also, like, we're on lexical tones. I am such a lexical nerd. I just learned something new about the word ye. Oh, really? And that is that the Y was originally a different letter, but the the printing press didn't have enough... um, didn't, it wasn't important enough for them to create this this additional letter that looked like a B and a P combined, and the actual sound is a TH. It's not Y. Oh. It's the. It's, it's always been the. the. Doesn't that just, like, water down so many oh things for God. you? Oh, my God. I don't even want to think about that. I'm going to forget <laughs> that you told me that. <laughs> Go ahead and forget it, but it is Lexical Tones, and I just learned it recently, yeah. and we are talking about my lexical... Fuckery, so <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> the smoke curls into the so sky. So this is from <laughs> this is from an opera called Eva and the Angel of Death. Um, so Thomas approached me with this um, opera concept, like fully formed, um, and that's kind of the way he goes. He's also like a huge nerd and will just like research things to death. And so he had this in his mind already. And I went with it because it's a great story. Um, So even the angel of death is based on a true story. Again, we're in like historical fiction world. Um, I didn't realize I sent you two historical fiction ones. Uh, I mean, I do a lot of historical fiction, so I guess it makes (laughs) sense. Um, So Eva Moses core is a, uh, or was a Holocaust survivor. And she was part of the, twins experiments that Mengele mm-hmm. did during uh the during the holocaust and so her and her twin miriam were nine ten years old um in auschwitz and every day they were i mean she's the only one that survived from her family because and and her sister because they are part of these experiments um mm. and it's just it's the grossest creepiest stuff you can imagine and so this you know, um, I, I've done a few Holocaust remembrance works now. Um, it's something I feel really strongly about. But the thing that I really want to make sure that I'm doing with these works is that it's for the people that relate to it most, as well as educating those who aren't. Um, and so I never want to be re-traumatizing anyone with this work. Um, I don't want to be... Um, like bringing up the horrors of what happened for drama. So Mm -hmm. this story is very much about Eva. It it shows a little bit of her life in Auschwitz. um, But again, it's very focused on her emotional state throughout it and less about like going through kind of what happened. Um, And then the second half of the opera is about her coming to terms with her sister's death it's like 50 years after. Mm. Um, 
and she goes back to Auschwitz um, to kind of like get over or get past all of the grief and the trauma that she experienced. And not that you can ever get over it, but I think that her way of really moving on and like living a full life. Yeah. Was she felt was to forgive the Nazis for what they had done to her. And of course it's like, that's just huge. And when I heard that, I was like, well, (laughs) I don't know if I agree with this. Cause I don't know if like anyone, like the, I think the idea of forgiveness and the idea of, healing from forgiveness is very wrought and there's a lot of different ways to talk about it and so i was like Mm -hmm. okay well i just need to look into her ideology and what she means by forgiveness before i say yes to this project because um you know coming from kind of a, a hyper christian background the idea of forgiveness was very like guilt trippy and so like i was just like Okay, so let me look into this. But actually, I really love what she says. Um, her idea is that that you, as someone who's been through something traumatic, have the power to, by forgiving that person, to let go of that past. And that you're no longer a victim of that because you have empowered yourself to overcome it. And so it's really about like healing yourself and doing what you need to do for you as a way to live your fullest life and to find like joy and fulfillment in your life, even though you have this traumatic past. And so I really liked that a lot. And I was like, okay, this is a really important message. And so like, that's the message of the opera. Um, And she's such an interesting person. Um, And the way that she talks is like, I was like, whoa, this is going to be interesting to try to get into operatic, like, sounding <laughs> stuff. Because she's just, like, very straightforward. Her, mm. her very, like, adamant and, like, brash in the way she speaks. And, and it was a really, really fun challenge to bring her speech into it while still making it operatic, you know? So, um, yeah. and I was so lucky. I got to meet her before she passed away and actually, like, speak oh, with her. Wow. So it was really interesting to be, like, working on something that the person who I was writing about was still alive at the time. Yeah. It was really yeah. interesting. Now, actually, now that you say that, I am thinking back to a social media post that you had uh, with her, right? Yes. And and the com- uh, the composer as right. well. Yeah. That's amazing. And I feel terrible about messing up the name. <laughs> no, that's okay. Honestly, there's so much going on. It's just like it's so it's so it's so heavy. But at the same time, you know, I was listening to a couple minutes of it before we started, and I don't. I, I know that this is from the, the first half, that this is from the heavier half, but at the same time, I don't listen to it and feel, especially at the very beginning, I don't, I don't feel the full weight of what's going on yet. Yeah. Um, and that might be the placement in the opera. It might have been that, you know, it was a few minutes before we started <laughs> Zooming and I was trying to figure out which Zoom room I was supposed to be. No, I mean, it, it, it's, but... Uh, but having that context, I'm sure that now, you know, I'm going to listen to it with entirely different ears right alongside our audience um, who got the, 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 the preface beforehand. So let's listen to this.
beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny because, yeah, so the character here is like 10 years old. So yeah, that's probably where I got some of that lightness yep. from. Like there's, there's, and that actually that calls to, um, like that's an emotional thing for me. The promises that we make as kids that we don't understand the full depths of, like come home to roost when we're adults, and that seems like it ends up being the second half of the opera. I, you know, I promise I will never let go. Yeah, yeah, ends up becoming a problem um, when you make a promise you can't fully understand how it unwinds through your future um that's that's it's such a huge weight but at the same time the composer said it beautifully because it is that's why i thought it was such a a much lighter subject um and i know your your projects i've researched them and and you know for the for the past couple hours i've forgotten where which key this was to which door you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> which where it fits in which opera and so uh you know it's listening through two entirely different lenses um and and it completely captures the childlike nature of even when when a 10 year old is in a situation like, the worst possible the worst <laughs> possible situation um you know they're still finding something to be curious about something that is a mission for them and and something to look forward to into the future and you've got you've captured it with the text and the composer has captured it with the music and y'all have just floored me <laughs> yeah <a> <laughs> and i i love what thomas does with especially the first act of this opera because his stuff is usually like super crunchy and mm. dark and heavy, at least like the stuff that I've heard of his. And like hearing, it's interesting because you say like the first act of the opera is the Holocaust and the second half of the opera is like the aftermath 50 years later. And you mm-hmm. would think that the first half would actually be the heavier part. And it is in some way, but it also isn't because the music yeah. is lighter the the same singer sings both roles at both ages so she's like 10 years Mm. old and 60 and so you'll hear here in this one as she plays the 10 year old it's like very straight tone it is very Mm -hmm. light um the music is is lighter um and i love all of the jewish um uh like uh, traditional embellishments sound that you hear. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you hear it later in the opera too, but it's, you hear it really strong, like that folk sound and that traditional like sound there. And it's just so beautiful. Like, yeah, I just, I love that. I love like the way <laughs> that he uses the voice that way. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> You've just, I've got, I've got pulled out of time and place, which is what, of course, like one of the things I obsess about as a composer is how to help my audience get pulled into a story like that. And, and, you know, with one slice of this opera, um, you've completely done that. So now, of course, I'm a little dazed. Um, (laughs) uh, What are you looking forward to next? Like, do you have, uh, do you have projects on the horizon um, that you're, you're really getting excited about that you can talk about or you can't talk about, but you know, you can kind of vaguely (laughs) reference with all of the emotions attached to them. Yeah. Um, So I got, I have two major projects I'm working on right now. Um, One is a dream project of mine. I'm writing a piece about Emily Dickinson to be premiered in her house in Amherst. <gasps> Jealous. I know. That's amazing. So I've been a huge <laughs> Emily Dickinson nerd since like 2011 or so, maybe earlier. But like, I freaking love her stuff. And I've always wanted to write about her and her sister-in-law's relationship, which is just very gay. And, <laughs> and like, no one <laughs> really talks about it enough. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much There's so much going on there. I mean, even to the point where, like, after Emily passed away, a lot of the poems that she wrote to her sister-in-law, Susan, um, people would go through and erase Susan's name out of the, like, manuscript. And like, of course they would. Yeah. Those are terrible. Yeah. So I'm just like, like they were trying so hard to hide it for so long. Um, mm. 
and it's just super interesting. And so I'm writing this piece about Emily Dickinson and at a time in her life when she was just like very secluded in her home and dealing with the fact that Susan is marrying her brother instead of her. Mm, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Again, I guess historical fiction, but like, it's just very, I mean, Emily Dickinson is so weird. So it's like a very weird piece and it's really great. I know, but like at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a large scale project that one of her poems is the centerpiece of, um, my, my life had stood a loaded gun. Oh, yes. Is, yeah. Um, so you, you know, this project, cause you were one of the first people I called about, I'm writing an opera about gun violence and yeah. my librettist brought this to me and was like, I think this can be a central theme. And I was like, if it's not a central theme, I don't think we know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I, you know, that I think she was not necessarily of her time. Yeah. And that's what still speaks to us is like, you know, she pulled all the stops out as far as rhythm and, in, in poetry and, um, and, and even to some extent logic and it still it just resonates still so so reverberantly that that it's relevant it's relevant mm-hmm. and a lot of it's coming into public domain Yay! Yeah. her stuff is <laughs> awesome and also like what blew my mind when i learned was that we've been reading like these edited sanitized versions of her work for so long yeah that like the most important like anthologies of her work were edited by others and like the punctuation was changed the line breaks were changed her capitalization was changed and these are things that as a poet i'm just like yeah oh my god like (laughs) just like killing me here um and so once i learned that i was just like oh and then like went on to like find like her manuscripts like literally they've digitized all her handwritten manuscripts and like looking at her punctuation and there's even punctuation that just doesn't translate into like typed text Mm. because it's like, Oh, it's actually a hyphen that like goes up at the end or it's a hyphen that's shorter or like there's, it's so intricate. And like, like you said, she's just, she was and is, I think ahead of her time. Like, yeah, like she's still kind of like beyond in a way. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, maybe maybe then the right thing to think out is that she's outside of time. Yeah. It doesn't really. I I don't know. And and my my father in law was obsessed with her um text. And uh, correct me, it's been a while since I I dug into her history. She's from upstate New York. Um, she's mostly she's Amherst, so it's Massachusetts. Mostly Amherst. Okay. All right. Then I have no idea why he was so like connected to I mean, this but upstate as <laughs> uh, uh, i don't know i'm trying to give i don't some. know i think everybody if you asked someone to color in like what is upstate like there are certain factions of the country that would just be like everything north of new york city <laughs> yup yup that was <laughs> straight on up to maine <laughs> yeah that was me growing up <laughs> <laughs> I do not blame you, but <laughs> my God, there's a lot of flavors upstate. <laughs> yep. I know this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk forever about Emily Dickinson, but. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's so exciting. So, so um, is it a song? Is it a short form opera? Is it? So it's 40 minutes not a song <laughs> so it's not a song um it's it's a short opera it technically has one character but it has four singers so mm. there's one emily dickinson and then the rest of the orchestration is actually just voices and so it's either a trio or a quartet i don't know i mean that's so dana kaufman is the uh composer mm. And she went to Amherst College, and so she's been hired to write this for their, like, bicentennial celebration of the college, and the college owns the house. The house is a museum, um, and so it's going to be performed there, and it's going to be so cool. Um, so anyway, it's it's kind of a monodrama, kind of a short opera. I don't know. It, it, it's kind of, you know, one of these it exists. genre-less It doesn't things. need labels. Yeah. Yeah. It's for voice. <laughs> 
it's dramatic it's um you know plot and characterization driven and you know it, it's oh, close enough awesome. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm actually, you brought up Tony earlier and, and the fact that he is very, um, very savvy when it comes to video game music. It's excellent work, uh, but also is writing symphonies and operas and, 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 and we are the generation that was told to, you know, jack of all trades, master of nine. And all of us are like, I mean, I mean, this is something I wanted to talk about, too, or at least touch base on. We're here tonight to talk about your work, but this is such a small piece of what you are as a creator and an advocate and a, a human being. Um, we haven't even mentioned your day. I mean, you, you mentioned that you have a day job, but we haven't <laughs> even mentioned, like, the important work that you're doing through your day job. Because I want to focus on the art, but, um, but I love this andness to what a lot of us are doing and and you just seem to like fall right within that it doesn't need a label it's if anything our label for <laughs> i think this this generation of musicians and creators is and yeah i mean <laughs> it's interesting because it's like i think of myself i used to think of myself as a musician and then i thought of myself as a writer and it's just like actually it's I'm just a creator, like, I'm just creating things. And so, like, mm -hmm. when I let myself be more lax about that, like, label, like you said, labeling, it it's so much better because it's like, well, what do I want to make? What brings me joy? And then, like, how can I make it happen? So, like, the anthology is, like, you know, putting together something that I didn't personally make, but I'm making something out of other things. And that's what I feel like producing is a lot of that, too. Um, and so in my day job, it's like building programs for composers who are looking to write for orchestral ensemble. And how can we build programs? How can we create things that are helpful to them? And so, like, that's the way I see it. Um, because it's like, yeah, I find it hard to be like, well, what are all the things that I am? It's just like, at the end of the day, I just create things. Like, yeah. um, you know, one of my favorite projects um, was a piece. I was asked to be part of this thing called Bait Switch, which is an art program where they send you a piece of art and you create a piece of art based on it. And mm. then your piece of art is sent to somebody else who then creates a work of art on that. And you oh, only cool. have two weeks to make something. And so once you get that thing in your mailbox, inbox, whatever, it's a ticking clock. And I <laughs> I love that because it's like, I don't know, for some reason it takes off this idea that it needs to be perfect or that it needs to be polished or even that it needs to fit a genre. So the first time I got my work, I wrote this um like transcript of a TV show that happened, but the TV show never happened. And it was about <laughs> Kim Kardashian being sainted, like giving sainthood in the Catholic church. Um, I wish y'all could see my face right now. <laughs> and I kind of don't want to give Continue. it away, but um, at the end, something like very weird happens. Um, and that was so fun. Cause it was like, it was like opera and that you're only writing the dialogue. But then it was very like sci-fi and surreal. But then it was also like based in this very real person doing something that I could conceivably see happening. Like she <laughs> donates a lot of money to the church. So, you it's know, very true. it's very. True. And then the second time around uh, this year, I got another one and I've been working a lot on learning how to code because I really like it. And like, again, mm. it's like building something. And yeah. so um I created this like interactive um, website where you. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think I sent Hello, it to you. Oh, Aria, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes, I've been on that. <laughs> anyway, so you go in and basically this AI is like, we're gonna go into outer space. Like, where do you want to go? And you go to a planet and you get to communicate with an alien on that planet, and then you come back. Yes. Um, and so the communication aspect is really fun because it's like. You're both speaking, you're both communicating in English because the AI is like translating for you. But 
it's very hard for most people to actually have a conversation in the way they think of a conversation with the alien on the planet because the alien doesn't really want to talk about what you want to talk about and it doesn't have (laughs) the same like social construction of like hey how are you what's your name like blah 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 Mm -hmm. and so it's this interesting idea of like you're communicating in the same language but no communication is really happening I think that it was it's perfectly in line with like the way we learn language yeah. too because if you stray outside of the lines of what conversations I've learned in let's say oh Italian um you know all of a sudden I'm using the sentence no 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 mi dispiace sono americana you know like <laughs> I don't actually speak the language I know how to order pasta yeah yeah <laughs> And and yeah, so my my visit was was very much like yeah, we're we're missing the target of communication a little bit, and and uh, and and I love it. That's so very cool. I didn't know that that was for bait switch though. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so yeah. like creator ag- again, getting love back to this label. idea. That's just like I never would have thought of being like oh, I'm gonna combine fiction like interactive fiction and coding. <laughs> To make this thing for an art yeah. project, like <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. that's so much so. fun! Awesome. Well, Aiden, it has been fantastic having you. Why don't you let us know where we, can we find you online and social media? I know you're on many, many a platform. <laughs> uh, are there any that you're not on? Actually, that might be easier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really you're on... <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. I'm not really on Facebook. Um, so I like to hang out on Twitter um, most. Um, you can find me on the uh, on the World Wide Web at <laughs> AidenKimPeltCamp.com and find all my projects as they're happening and kind of more about them and, you know, um, all that fun stuff. And then I'm on Twitter at TransCarabino. Uh, that's it. <laughs> and on Instagram <laughs> at the same handle. <laughs> but that's mostly just pictures of, like, my cat and my birds and my robots, and that's it. Hey, you know, I teach branding to undergrads, and, and I tell them that, like, at this point, branding for a creator or composer or whatever is, like, everything in your life plus your projects. Yep. So... You get a gut instinct when you say a composer's name, and it's every interaction you've had with them on social media, on uh, in person with their music. You know, if a pe- if a score gets mailed to you, you have an opinion about the state in which it was received. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you cannot get on Instagram with me without finding you know pictures of running sneakers and cats so I think that like that's fair branding so (laughs) birds and cats is fantastic in fact when you when you texted me or when you sent an email earlier tonight and said uh something about your birds yeah the birds went to bed so they won't be loud during the podcast (laughs) (laughs) went to bed I misread it and I thought it you said the birds will be on the bed and I was like, you know, it's been a while since we had a, like, pet-in-your-face podcast episode. <laughs> this will be great. But also, I had one very loud bird outside my window at 3.30 this morning, and I really couldn't sleep through it. So oh, my no. day would have been bookended by birds. I would have loved it. Like, uh, <laughs> that that 3am bird would make sense if we also ended the day with a bird podcast. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I have a sun conure, and they scream at, like, 90 decibels, which... If anyone oh knows, God. it's like a jet plane, basically. Yeah. So yeah. he would just ruin. I have a brother-in-law that sh- screams at one ten, so I totally get. <laughs> so he would ruin if all the levels. Haven't, if you haven't downloaded a decibel meter for family gatherings, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's true. <laughs> you have to be able to tell them you're louder than two idling train engines. Calm down. <laughs> so relatable fantastic thank you so much for being a guest and hanging out with me and uh and we look forward to following more of what you're doing and uh and i just i can't wait i love what you're doing (laughs) thank you so much for having me i'm always happy to chat text so (laughs) thanks for listening as always if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.